The following is a paid presentation. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of Shiawassee Radio. This is your cell. This is your bunk. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio, live from the Cofield Oil and Propane Studios. Here's attorney Bill Amadeo. Okay, we are live. I am Bill Amadeo from... Manus Lamadeo and Grable and Associates and the Shiawassee Six. And today, the topic that came up a lot was the topic of bullying. You know, it was weird when this topic came up. Because I asked a friend of mine, if somebody fights back, are they bullied? it was a friend I respect a lot and he says yeah it definitely is because in considering your size and where you grew up I assume that you were bullied a lot and it kind of made me think about things like fighting back I guess there's a difference between being a coward and being bullied and the two can go hand in hand the one concept I took from this, and this all happened with the whole Mitchell Miller issue in the NHL. There were two types of kids that were really bullied. When we thought about it today, me and my friend, in between court appearances. And Rick Knoop, one of my best friends, great physical therapist in Texas, one of my closest friends. We're going back and forth in these Texas between court appearances. And it's like... The two types of kids that were bullied were the ones that just ate shit and allowed themselves to be tormented for life, and the ones that just fought back. Obviously, I'm in category B, but I think back to different forms of bullying, different styles, and I guess today, like, when I see a prosecutor... Or a prosecutor's always hide evidence or something like that. Or play a case to the media. I think I go back to those times when I feel somebody was trying to take advantage of me. And that's where some of the craziness comes out. Now, luckily, I've channeled it in an intellectual way. But bullying, it's kind of fascinating. And I guess I'll give you my historical view on it. Um, at St. James... And St. James is well documented if you follow me. And I guess I go back even a step further. People don't join religious cults. People don't join gangs. People don't join hate groups. <coughs> unless one or two things happen in my opinion. One. They were desperate for acceptance. And they finally found acceptance within this organization. Whether it be good or evil. Or two, it was learned behavior. And with the learned behavior, the concept that you evolve into this member of an organization because you were told what you're supposed to do, it really comes down to this theory of acceptance. And the problem is, I ever wrote this screwed up script, you know, people bought into it. And I'll go back to St. James. I don't think... It's amazing how such a small town like Ventnor could have such a group of ass. And the bullying that happened at St. James... I think a lot of it... Was endorsed by the teachers there. Now understand something at St. James. I'm a sick kid. I'm at Children's Hospital all the time. And I'm fighting for my life. And my family put me on a bus from the ghetto to go to St. James in the suburbs of Etner. And, you know, I think back, and I was going to drop some names, but I, you know, I know there's some people that would like to sue me just because they have no money and their life is shit today. And that's some of the bullies we'll talk about, not by name. I think back to St. James, and we had our golden boy. This is the one who was just beloved by the priest and the nuns. And no matter what this individual did, it was just accepted. It was good to go. If he said or did something to somebody, 
it was no big deal. If you said it as something to him, you were an outlier. And they almost empowered this individual to be an ass. Um, there's another kid I got in fights with as a child who, by all intents and purposes, was a little piece of shit. Couldn't fight his way off a wet paper bag. But he felt tough because he was with this inner circle. And at St. James, it became really odd. Who was accepted and who wasn't, it was dictated by the teachers. Now, understand some of these teachers, they couldn't make it in the public school system. They couldn't make it in higher education. Um, some of them didn't have college degrees. But they had this little, tiny bit of power in this very weird place. And they chose in-crowd who wasn't in-crowd. And bullying came into flavors. It came physical. But it was greater in the emotional aspect of things. You know, who could afford the nicer jackets and the good clothes and this and that? And I will say the church at St. James, the priest and the teachers, they endorsed this behavior. And they put us in the caste system. And when I say it was emotional bullying, you were getting shit from people that were in crowd. And it was being empowered by the powers that be. And I look back on this whole Mitchell Miller thing, and I would fight, you know? I would defend myself. I was a sickly kid. Um, craziness would happen a little bit later. We'll get into Atlantic City High bullying. But I think the grammar school bullying, whether it be emotional or physical, it plays such a role in your life that it can have these adverse effects or make you a powerful being. And I found it fascinating, completely fascinating, that with this Mitchell Miller case, I feel bad for the kid that was victimized. But to me, rather than try to screw up Mitchell Miller's career, I think better revenge would be being more successful than him. I don't... When I think back of people... I can't stand as a youth. Never once did I think I want to screw up their career. It was more like I hope I get a chance to see them in court. If they want to sign consent forms today, well, let me know if you want to do that, guys. I mean, you don't really have to go through much of a Facebook scroll with these people to see their lives are shit. You know, they're not doing much with their lives. But the things about bullies from grammar school is they need this sense of entitlement the rest of their life. If there's one thing I hate about Facebook, it's that it gives ass who have done nothing with their lives a sense of importance to relive that one moment of power they had. That's interesting to me. And I guess one of the reasons I keep my profile public is I like to stick up the ass of people that were assholes to me. And I will tell you, I think the Ventner kids were not tough at all. They were tough in their own little circle, but if they came to my old neighborhood, they were completely cowards. And it was an interesting dynamic. St. James was screwed up, but the bullying we talk about was that emotional bullying. That concept that I'm better than you. Okay. High school got real. Now, here's where we have to break down the concept of bullying. And it goes two ways, guys. Let me be clear on this. Race plays a component in this. And whether it's a white kid belittling a black kid or a black kid belittling a white kid... Bullying's bullying, and a lot of this comes down to social economics. I want to go back to my story. You're a white kid in the hood. Now, at this point, you are the minority. And I remember Trishay Duckworth once said to me that I had white privilege. <laughs> yes, Trishay. It was a blast growing up in Ducktown in the 90s as the only white kid in our neighborhood. You were a target. Now, 
the black and Spanish kids that were robbing you and beating you and stuff like that, I didn't view them based upon race. I just accepted this is your circumstance at the time. But I hate when people use the term white privilege because it's more of an economical situation. If you are white and have money, I suppose there are privileges. But poor is poor and green is money. So I don't know any race that's green, but I will tell you, if you grow up poor, you have a greater chance of being victimized whether you're white, black, blue, or green. And being a white kid in Ducktown in the 90s, I didn't view as what was going on with me being bullied. And that's what me and Rick had this conversation about today between court appearances. I was beaten. I was shot at. I was stabbed. I was robbed. I may have been raped. I don't I kind of blocked that out. I don't know if that's bullying as much as just plain old abuse. And it wasn't abuse because I was a coward. I always fought like hell. And this is where St. James gets screwed up. Because as you're surviving as a junior in high school, and you're caught between those two worlds, and you're going to the parties in the suburbs or trying to go to when you could get a ride because we have a car, the attitude of the Ventnor and Margate kids was one of emotional bullying. The Brigantine Atlantic City kids, it was more of a physical attack. We're talking about a physical attack. Somebody pounding your head into the concrete. I never viewed that as bullying. Somebody saying that they have better clothes than you, you don't fit in. I consider that bullying. So I think we get these lines between emotional and physical. And what I learned was if I fight really hard, I can combat the physical abuse. Most of the assholes I got in fights with there was a theme. If I fought really hard, even if I got my ass kicked, that would solve the problem. Usually they're not going to pick on you again if you gave them a run for their money. The emotional abuse, which comes down to socioeconomics in the suburbs, you can't really fake having a nice sweater, right? Your family either has money or they don't have money. And I will say, I think it's really sad. Um, Poor white kids in my situation end up in asshole situations. They join evil groups. They join where they try to be accepted just because they don't want to get beat anymore. They don't want to get robbed anymore. And obviously, racism is wrong. But I thank God the internet was not such a... wasn't even around when I was in high school that I knew of. I mean, I'm sure it was in certain areas, but, you know... When you're poor and getting beaten and you feel like you're the minority, you look for acceptance. You will pledge allegiance to who can protect you. And I'm really proud of myself mentally that I did not do that when the whole Rodney King tragedy occurred. Because I was beaten that day. And the white supremacists came out of nowhere. But you got to understand something. Some of these kids that join these hate groups, it's not because they want to be hate. They don't want to spread hate. They don't want to be bullied anymore. And we lose sight of that. It's not always a black and white issue. Quite often it is a socioeconomic issue. It's sad that there's not more therapy around for kids. AC High was a lesson in life. And what I learned at AC High, and please, I've heard people say how AC High helped mold who they were. AC High, being white, living in Atlantic City, being caught between two worlds, AC High taught me survival skills. It taught me how, what it taught me what fear really was. Fear was walking home to Pitney Village. That's fucking fear, man. Not a prosecutor hiding evidence. Not a judge belittling you. You really have to look at you, who is attacking you in life. Look at it. Have they been through your shoes? Could they walk a mile in your shoes? So I will tell you right now. Most of the people I have problems with, they would not have lasted in Ducktown in the 90s. So when we talk about bullying there, I guess bullying is somebody physically trying to threaten you. Reaction is where I get confused. There's two part of the equations. There's somebody trying to overpower you, right? And then there's your reaction to it. 
I guess I didn't feel bullied because my reaction was to fight. My aunt told me at a very young age, I was 14 or 15, and I came home from a fight. And I lost the fight and I ran home. One of the most shameful experiences of my life. And my aunt told me she would not sleep again until I fought. And that day triggered something in me. Made me think about the ass of St. James. It set a tone for life. Because the person I feared the most in this world was not the black gangbanger, not the Spanish kid trying to take my money, not the Jewish kid from Margate bragging about their shirts, not the douchebag from Ventnor, the white kid who thought he was better than you. The person I feared most was Aunt Mare. Mary Lee Neary was f***ing terrifying. Ugh, I said the F word. I know somebody's going to report that one. Oh, well. So when Aunt Mare says, you fight or you don't come home, that was a trigger for me. And the rest of my life's been a fight. It's been like that. The problem with that was when you were dealing with mock trial. And mock trial was our way out of the ghetto, okay? The legal profession has allowed me to live the life I'm living. And the ghetto has allowed me to survive in that life. Double-edged sword there. But you knew if you brought the ghetto into the mock trial experience, you would not be able to last in the mock trial experience. And if you behaved in the mock trial experience that way when walking home in the ghetto, you would just get obliterated, get destroyed. So you learn to dance between two worlds. And the abuse, I will take physical abuse over emotional abuse any day of the week. And what happens is with certain people, the emotional abuse they receive from emotional bullying leads to physical outcomes. What we're trying to do is dance in two camps, right? Any kid that is poor has to deal with a bunch of shit. And they start dealing with that shit when they learn they're poor. So when we're all poor, we don't realize we're poor, right? What happens when we commingle and social economic groups collide, then the clicks start. And that's where different layers of bullying come in. Nobody wakes up and wants to be a criminal. Nobody has that need to be a badass until the concept of survival kicks in. And at AC High, it was interesting. Um, you guys remember the song Jump Around by House of Pain? That song gave white trash from the suburbs a license to be an asshole. It just really did. I don't have a lot of bitterness towards kids in the ghetto that I lost fights to. Just don't. They were going through shit times. I do have some animosity towards people from Ventnor and Margate who talk shit about me. Who tried to hold me down. When you're different, when there's something special about you that scares the shit out of people, people will try to put out that flame. And there was this poor white kid I was defending a few days ago from a really bad part of Detroit. And his family is one of the last white families. They couldn't afford me. They tried to come up with some money because they had a relative that ended up in a really bad situation because they didn't have a good lawyer. And I'm connected to this kid and his family, right? And I'm watching this family try to bring it together. And there were so many things I related to this kid about. He's white in an all-black neighborhood. He's trying to be tough. He's smart, but he's scared. He can't evolve. He can't assimilate into the group. He's not cool enough to fit with the black kids. He doesn't have the polish to hang out with the white kids in the suburbs. Their families don't want him coming in. He's an outsider everywhere he goes. And his criminal history right now is limited. But one of my goals with him is to, number one, make sure he stays out of the juvenile system. Number two, make sure he goes to college and does something with his life. 
and use this heartache into something powerful. There weren't many of us in Ducktown. When I say many, it was many white kids. We were the last one in our little area, but most of the ones that were there are either dead or in prison. They overdosed. There was this tragic aspect to it. And I guess one of the reasons I've always been so level-headed and can't stand racism is because I understood it wasn't a black and white issue. When you were being abused by somebody because of the color of your skin, it was a learned behavior issue. And I don't blame a race for that. I blame our social economic situation. So common sense tells you you gotta fight to survive but get the f out of that situation. Okay. That's a strong mental concept. Everybody has that. And I will tell you that the bullying that occurred in the suburbs, while may not as physical as the bullying that occurred in the hood, left deeper scars. Years later, in the church and in college, these cliques that came into play, these people that weren't cool, they were just looking to be accepted for once. At the chicken clam bakes and the ones that were hanging out with the priest and getting drunk and making fun of people. I never understood why if you were treated like shit, it made you feel better to treat other people like shit. That concept of misery loving company, it just doesn't make sense to me. I've been on the other end, so why would I want to treat somebody like shit? I also have this battle going on where when I see like a prosecutor or an opposing counsel that thinks they're better than you and they've never been in a fight in their life, you, it's like hard to respect that. Because I think those of us that have been in those physical altercations and have made it into this world, we see the layers of things, you know? It's hard to respect somebody's never had their ass kicked. It just really is. And when that person is on their high horse and talking shit and they haven't walked a mile in your shoes, it's frustrating because I always try to see the other side's argument. I really do. And there are some prosecutors out there who I think are absolutely amazing. And I respect so much what they do because they're making less money to protect their community. And damn it, that's admirable. But the ones that are using it for politics only, they deserve to get run over. And when I see a Scott Corner or a Mark Reen or somebody like that who truly have given up higher payer jobs to protect their community and stick to the facts of the case, you weren't against each other. You gotta respect the hell out of that. When I see other people that need to play cases to the media for their own political agenda, that's kind of tragic. That's bullshit. Won't mention their names, but you can do the math. And I guess the concept of bullying lives today in a very strong manner. Here's what I would say to the kids that are being attacked. Because I never actually viewed being bullied if you fought back. But I guess it is. So, here's the thing. In my opinion, and take this for what you will, it is far better to lose a fight than to run from a fight. If you get a black eye or a broken nose, you could take pride in the fact that you stood your ground. But if you run away scared, that emotional shit's gonna tear you up. We can't control when somebody tries to kick sand in our face, but we sure as hell can throw sand back. So, I guess an eye for an eye makes sense to me. I just, I find it hard to believe that bullying is not a vague term. And I'm really glad that my aunt made me fight at a young age and said you need to grow a set of balls. And I don't feel there's enough people with balls out there today. I also have to wonder. If you don't fight back. If you don't go in there and swing. At some point, can you look yourself in the mirror 
And when you do look yourself in the mirror, what are you going to see? If somebody emotionally abuses you, best thing to do, become more successful than them and stick up their ass. If somebody tries to physically attack you, you've got to fight back. In either event, in either concept of this horrible theory, fighting back is the answer. How you choose to strategically fight back, that evolves. That's different. And the whole Mitchell Miller thing really hit me hard today. If what Mitchell Miller did is factual with ESPN is reporting, I think that sucks. He shouldn't have been a bully. I just don't know if the kid should lose his career for sins he made when 8th grade. And to the victim, the best way to really stick it up Mitchell Miller's ass would be to become more successful than him, not to try to destroy the guy's career. That's my two cents. I don't think it's a black and white issue. Again, I think it's a green issue. It comes down to socioeconomics. And... I think we really need to examine where we stand as a society. This whole politically correct bull let me tell you something. If we gotta walk on pins and needles in every conversation, we are not living in a good world. There's no shame in standing up for yourself. You gotta think of who's writing the script, guys. The biggest thing to take from this, and this one kid who I'm representing, I want you to really pay attention because I know you're watching. Stand your ground and fight like hell. But don't lose yourself in that fight. You can do big things. I don't want you to take it physically. But I don't want you to bring your frustration in one area into your potential harming of your future. It's a fine line. And I'm going to do what I can to get you there. Because I've been there. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. I am exhausted, man. I've been here for a while working. I'm going to tell you, I'm just wiped out tired man all right we're gonna take a couple topics today one the drama of inmate calls let's start with that first of all when you are incarcerated you should not be calling your lawyer to talk about the case just shouldn't and it's very interesting the calls you get um some people want to talk about their case shiawassee is the worst violator of this I tell people in the Shiawassee jail, they listen to the call, and they'll say things. They'll make these admissions on the call. There was this one guy. He was a complete ass. No longer a client. But he say things, all I did was sell drugs to an undercover. Like, okay, dude, stop. Shut up. No, I'm going to talk to you. You're my lawyer. Wait till I come see you. Oh, my God. And some of the ones in Shiawassee that think they're badasses, my wish for them to be humbled would be to spend a weekend at the Wayne County Jail. Because the Wayne County Jail, it's going from JV to varsity, guys. Wayne County inmates are smarter, though. They'll speak in code. Did you see the Tigers game last night? That means call this person who will be my alibi, hypothetically. And then Washington. The Washington Jail are these weird intellectuals. They're going to tell you about the case and what you should be doing for them. Shut up on the calls. Seriously. I just, I hate jailhouse calls. It's nothing good's gonna happen on a jailhouse call, guys. Seriously. Shut up. God, wait till I come to see you. Mm. There's more confessions on jailhouse calls. Last night, I went to um Scott Grable's house. And he taped this episode of Real Sports. Real Sports is a show with Brian Gumbel, and I always liked Real Sports. Um, Brian Gumbel and Greg Gumbel are two journalists. Always had a great deal of respect for them. And Real Sports, it kind of, Real Sports breaks things down. It goes in depth. Last night's episode, though, was extremely disheartening. The one Scott taped for me. He taped it because it was about the Philly Fanatic, right? 
I'm a big Philly Fanatic fan. I mean, I think the Philly Fanatic is the greatest mascot in the history of sports. But the episode as a whole, I'm not one to be a critic and hate on episodes, but who decided this was the move? Let me tell you what episode 7, July 2022 of Real Sports was. Number one, sumo wrestling. So they went to Tokyo, I believe. Tokyo or Japan, I forget where the sumo capital is, but it's really fascinating what these poor guys go through. To be a sumo wrestler, it's pretty brutal, apparently, but this was like, this was tragic. Like, the sumo wrestler who didn't make it, how he shamed, and he basically quit school at 15 to go into the sumo um, field, if you would. And it was just really horrifying. And then there were the sumo groupies. There were these two girls they had, like, I guess early 20s. And they said how they kissed the sumo blanket every night before they go to bed and dreamed of the sumo wrestlers kissing them. So I guess sumo wrestlers could be like rock stars here. Their life was horrible. They eat this insane amount of food. They're going through torture. And if they don't make it, my God, that was depressing, but it was interesting. I'm like, okay, well, I'm not a sumo wrestling fan, but let's see what you got next. This is where I think the show jumped the shark. The World Series of Bird Watching. There were these guys in New Jersey. Of course, they had to be from Jersey. And Scott's like, do you want me to fast forward through this? I'm like, well, yeah, fast forward, but then hold on. Um... I'm kind of curious what these bird watchers are going to say. And they go from North Jersey to South Jersey. Like, every year we do this, and we do it for 24 hours. And I thought it was weird, because they're in the car going to follow and stalk these different birds. We'll talk about stalkers later. And they're eating these big chicken legs, which I thought was kind of apropos since they're stalking birds. But that was... I'm sorry. I, I thought it was funny. But, um... So these guys... For 24 hours straight, they go watch with their cameras and all their weird technology to watch these different birds across the state of New Jersey. And Scott Grable turns to me and he says, oh, they went to South Jersey. Did you ever go to the bird watching World Series? I said, yeah, I went to the one in 09. It changed my life forever. He didn't get the humor at first. Who the hell goes to watch birds for 24 hours straight. Ah, oh, that was horrifying, but okay. These poor geeks. Um, these are the same guys that go to watch movies at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. You know, on Wednesday. You get the drift. Finally, we get to the Philly Fanatic. And I'm pumped up, right? Okay, the Fanatic, Dave Raymond. Love the Philly Fanatic. Let's talk about this. And Dave Raymond starts telling the story how he became the Fanatic. And I'm all into it, you know, all right. Eating our Tavern 109 meal, and let's see what the Fanatic's got to say. And it takes a horrible turn. Um, Dave Raymond's mother went deaf when he was a young boy. And he used to have to communicate with her non-verbally. And this was his inspiration for being the Fanatic. And then he says how his mom was dying in the hospital. The doctor gave her eight months to live. So he used to go to the hospital every day, sometimes in his fanatic uniform, trying to cheer her up. I get it. And then he says how his wife left him. And he was suicidal. And he did one more performance as the fanatic. And uh, that performance saved his life. And then he kind of went corporate. And he became like the CEO of mascots across the country for corporations and for sports teams. Then he created the Mascot Hall of Fame. And these guys would travel across the country to go to the Mascot Hall of Fame. And there was this one new mascot. And this new mascot, follow me here, okay? He comes to the Mascot Hall of Fame. And he's doing his dance and all this other stuff. And they said, and then we got to meet this mascot. So this poor kid takes his hat off, right? It's a 13-year-old boy. This 13-year-old kid has a dream of being a mascot. Now, first of all, I'm rooting for this kid, right? I mean, 
I'm guessing this poor kid is not going to get laid in high school. He's not going to be at the cool lunch table. And hey, bro, I wasn't either, okay? It's fine. Things will turn around for you. I mean, I know I got much better looking when I started winning count murder cases. With that being said, this poor kid wants to be a mascot. And then you hear the mascots can make up to $500,000 a year. So now you grow a little bitter, right? It's like, okay, you know what I've had to get to to make that kind of money? I could have just been dancing as a mascot. It was really weird. Um, And it kind of took, like, the fun out of the Philly fanatic. I was always a big Philly fanatic fan, but hearing that Dave Rain was on the verge of suicide and all this other stuff, I'm glad it worked out for him, but man, they went behind the fourth wall right there. And then we got to the Isles of Man race. This is how they ended things, right? The Isles of Man race is this race that's held in a self-governing British crown dependency. What that means in English, it's not part of UK, it's not part of Ireland, but they have this motorcycle race. And apparently every year these people die during this race. Now, you may ask yourself, if there's a decent chance of dying, why are they racing? And they're talking to all these people that lost their limbs and they're still part of the sport. So in the Isle of Man racing, it was just tragic. You see all these guys, and they're, like, harming themselves to be in this race once a year. And then they bring in this politician mm. from the dependency. And he says how the rest of the world's have the balls, basically, to have this race. So, in the editing for the Real Sports episode, we got down on our luck sumo wrestlers. We got a bunch of weird bird watchers in New Jersey. The fanatic was suicidal. And these guys are killing themselves on motorcycles. Hmm. We're a long way from talking about concussions, Brian. I'm rooting for real sports to turn things around. You know, Spotify has been amazing. Um, Spotify has basically changed my enjoyment of music. Until about two years ago, I was still listening to CDs. And the cool thing about Spotify is you can do playlists. And one of the things I have done on these playlists is... um. I create it by category. You know, I got my Shiawassee playlist. I got my Ann Arbor playlist. I got just like songs. Now I got the Stalker playlist. Apparently, stalkers love to send me music. It's one of their things. I mean, a lot of ex-girlfriends or people I talked to back in the day, they know I was always big into music. And uh, when they're drunk... When the Tito's or the Grey Goose has kicked in, depending upon how much food they had before ingesting the vodka, they sent you songs. I want to tell you a few songs that they have sent to me recently. You know, I haven't seen them in a while. And it's really fascinating how people can express themselves through songs. I will say this. Stalkers love Paramore. I think they feel like Haley Williams is their soul. And the one song that that sent me many times was Brighter by Paramore. I'll post these songs later. Brighter is really concerning because the actual song itself was about the lead singer losing a friend to a boating accident. However, if you listen to the lyrics, it's about somebody who's out of your league and you're waving goodbye and watching their success. And But yeah, Brighter by Paramore. Recently I got... This song by Mod's son, Rich Kids Ruin Everything. It was from this girl who I guess her and her boyfriend are down her luck financially. And it was kind of confusing because, I mean, I wasn't a rich kid. Um, Very odd, but she went on this whole novel in a text message explaining what that meant. Better Homes and Garden by Taking Back Sunday. Now that's a weird one. Um, That's a Jersey-type stalker. Stalkers in Jersey send Taking Back Sunday. Stalkers in Shiawassee send Paramore. Stalkers in Ann Arbor send Emo. And uh, if you don't believe me, I'll show you my list. But one more time. If you're a Jersey stalker, Taking Back Sunday, sometimes brand new, is where you want to go. Um, the Shiawassee types, they love their Paramore. And the Ann Arbor stalkers, they love to send emo stuff. So, I guess what we learned from this whole thing is that if you're mentally 
unstable. Um, if you're in Ann Arbor, you like newer music. Sorry. Okay. I'm going to talk about personalities of dogs between Atlantic City and Ann Arbor. That was good, right? Okay. I love my dogs, right? Dogs have always been a huge part of my life. But I've learned that the socioeconomic status of your family can dictate the personality of the dogs. I'm going to talk about six dogs briefly. Odie, Scruffy, and Duke, Atlantic City. First, Maxie, Charlie, and Teddy, Ann Arbor. Odie was an old rescue dog. He was beaten by another family. He ran away. We got him. And this dog would protect our family like no other. Well, he would try anyway, I should say. We'll learn that Duke was the real badass. But here's Odie. Odie looked like an old man when he was a young dog. So Odie, he was just this great old dog. But he had this edge about him, right? He was tough. Um, he thought he was tougher than he was. And, you know, but he had an edge. Scruffy was this little tiny Maltese terrier. And somebody left Scruffy on Mississippi Avenue tied to a pole. And poor Scruffy was left there with no food, no water. And I'm walking by and I'm asking people in the hood, is this your dog? F*** you. So I realized Scruffy was abandoned. I take him home and he followed me home like we were friends forever. He was a nasty little guy. I love Scruff. He was a protector. He had a real, real surly personality, you know? I said to my aunt one time, who do you love more, me or Scruffy? And she goes, well, I adore you, but you're no Scruffy. I no hard feelings. Scruffy and my aunt were bonded at the hip. And Scruffy was the essential Atlantic City dog. Real tiny little guy. Had a lot of balls, though. A lot of courage. A lot of anger in that little guy. He was a protector of the family. Then there was Duke. Dukey was a Doberman. He was a rescue. We could never pet Duke. He appreciated us. He used to take the food. And he would take a bullet for the family. Duke was a pure badass. But we could never pet him. He used to come up to the door. Um, show his appreciation. But he was beaten. He was just... Duke was tough, man. Duke was not a rescue dog. Duke, I would put up against any dog in the world. As far as a fighter, he was just a little psychotic, but an amazing protector. But we couldn't have a connection with Duke the way we did with Odie and Scruffy. Now, the Ann Arbor dogs... Let me just say this. I love the Ann Arbor dogs with a passion. But we've had three golden retrievers. And um, let me tell you about them. Maxie. Maxie was my boy. He was about 17 when we had to put him down. Max came from Lansing. And I had an ex-girlfriend who I never will discuss except to say that she found Max on Pennsylvania Avenue in Lansing. He was abandoned. Apparently he had been beaten. He was a rescue dog. And after our breakup, um, she gave me Max after some interesting negotiations. Max came to Ann Arbor the last couple of years of his life. And let me tell you, Max took to the good life. On many a Sundays, you could see Max, me, and Joe Latorsky watching the Sunday ticket. Um, if Max ever wrote a memoir about me, it would be horrifying. Max was a sweet dog. Not a great defender of the home. He had a little bit of edge. He'd been through some shit in his life. He was my boy. I mean, that was just my dog. He'd been through stuff. Mm. When we had to put him down, and it was funny because the last year of his life, so my career really took off. So money wasn't an object. We would spend all sorts of money on experimental things, and he was happy. He was eating. He was playing. Um, 
last day though was horrible. He he basically told us it was time, and the vet said, "You'll know the day you have to put him down." Because he was supposed to pass away like six months. I always feel bad with Maxi. Probably kept him alive a year more than he should have. He wasn't in pain really, but when it was time to go, it was brutal. But he had such a great life. Um, and that dog. Mm. It was so different between Max versus Odie. Because Odie was my dog in Jersey, right? Odie lived a really good life. Max lived a really good life. And there was commonalities. They were both rescue dogs. But in a fight, Odie would beat Max up pretty bad. There was Atlantic City Edge versus Max. They got very accustomed to designer treat to Ann Arbor. And I thought Max was a little spoiled at the end. And he had that little suburban flair to him. Then I learned about Suburban Flair with Charlie. Charlie, our little Chucky, it's sad. He only lived a couple and a half years. He had a bad stomach um, issue and always depressed. He got taken away from us way too long. He was a great dog. But Charlie was about Charlie. Charlie enjoyed going to the salon. Charlie enjoyed going to daycare. He had special food. He had special this. He had special that. If a burglar came into the house... Charlie would greet him and say, hello, let me show you where the jewelry is. I mean, it was just, you know, it just wasn't tough. And such a sweet dog, I adored him so much, but when I look at Charlie's personality versus Odie's personality, it's like, whoa, environment plays a big role. We always treat our dogs amazing, but dogs are brilliant. They can't talk, right? They got this sixth sense. They could sense the environment. And in Atlantic City, the dogs had to be protectors. They were here to protect the family. In Ann Arbor, they were here to enjoy the benefits of your labor. And perhaps nobody encompasses that more than Teddy. Teddy is amazing. Teddy is the best part of our world. He is a sweet, beautiful dog. But as far as a watchdog, um, well, luckily where we live, there's not much robberies or harm. So we'll just leave it at that. I truly believe if an armed robber came into the home, Teddy would greet him and ask to play. It's funny because, let's take the armed robbery situation. Armed robber comes into the home in Atlantic City. Duke is going to try to rip his eyes out. Teddy is going to ask to be pet. Dogs are amazing. There's a special feeling towards my Atlantic City dogs. Because we went through some shit together. And Max encompassed that a little bit. Because Maxie, you know, he went through some stuff in Lansing. And then he went to the good life. Charlie and Teddy, who I adore, wouldn't trade them for any dogs. They're amazing. But they, um, they don't have a mean bone in their body. Even if a mean bone was necessary. I would say the Ann Arbor dogs are sweet and loving and the Atlantic City dogs were loving and badasses. Gonna end on a preview of the Village Green Years. And I hope Josh Woodman watches this. I know he does sometimes. The Village Green Apartment Complex in Lansing, Michigan. My God, if those walls could talk. And what we're gonna try to do is make those walls talk a little bit. Um... I moved into Village Green in 2005. My second term of law school, January of 05. Me and my cat, Bianca, which is a story in and of itself, we moved to V Green. And we moved from Washington Apartments. Now, when I came up to law school, I thought I was going to get into Rutgers. That's a long story. Some of you have heard that one before. But I came up the coolie on, like, no notice. And I just got the cheapest apartment I could. I'm tough. I don't give a shit, right? Well, I'll tell you. An apartment in a war zone is not the move for law school. Had a lot of drama go on at the Washington apartments. The deluxe hotel was right by there. And, uh... That was prostitution and drug addict haven. And walking home to Washington Park was always interesting. I decided to walk. It was like a 15-minute walk. And that wasn't the smartest move all the time. So, 
when I went to Village Green, I felt like somebody got paroled, you know? I'm like, wow, this is awesome. We were in the west part of Lansing, and things were safe, and I made all sorts of friends. I mean, there's, there will be some interesting stories with Village Green. Um, there's some stories with Cooley administration coming over when they were drunk. Ex-girlfriends who just moved in unannounced. And I had two experiences at Village Green. The first was the law school experience, and then after a breakup. Here was the thing about V Green. When you broke up with your significant other, you generally moved into Village Green. It's like I called Josh up, hey, me and her are broken up. He goes, I need an apartment. Let's get you in. The Village Green apartment complex. A lot of stuff happened at Village Green. I speak fondly on Village Green. From playing on their softball teams to having my tutoring business out of there, Village Green is going to be an interesting story. And we will change names and so, um, just so nobody gets out it. But uh, Village Green is definitely a part of my history, and we'll leave it at that for now. Although I'm a damn, that's enough for now. The proceeding was a paid presentation by McManus and Amadeo PLLC. Listeners of this program should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No listener should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information within this program without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Listening to this program using any associated website or related links or resources does not create an attorney-client relationship between the listener and host, contributors, or contributing law firms. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this program are hereby expressly disclaimed. You and your loved ones deserve a criminal defense firm that believes that your life and freedom are worth fighting for. Matt McManus, Bill Amadeo, and the McManus and Amadeo team of attorneys, investigators, and case managers will take the lead with a vast knowledge and legal experience across the state of Michigan to get the best possible result for you. Learn more at McManusAmadeo.com. Schedule a free consultation 24-7 by calling 800-392-7311.